Hello, and welcome to Universal, a new podcast from the University of Chester. I'm Vice-Chancellor Professor Eunice Simmons. I'm a scientist, environmentalist and educator. This week I spoke to Giles Brandreth about how to survive being stuck at home under social distancing measures. Giles is a writer, broadcaster, actor, former MP and the university's Chancellor, whose erudition and sense of humour make him the ideal person to talk to. So welcome, Giles. And how are you doing? I'm not doing too badly. I'm, in fact, self-isolating because I'm in the age group that does self-isolate. But I'm thrilled to be taking part in this podcast, Eunice, because while you are comparatively new as our vice-chancellor, I have been the chancellor of the University of Chester for a few years now. I succeeded uh, the late Duke of Westminster as chancellor, and I've known the university since before it became a university, because I was the Member of Parliament for the City of Chester in the 1990s, at the beginning of the journey that uh, the college made to becoming a university. I know it, uh, I love it. I particularly love its mission to educate for service. And that's relevant to some of the things I'm sure we're going to talk about. So it's an amazing community. And though I'm here in my self-isolation, I still feel very much part of it. And I have been sustaining myself, I think, during this interesting period that we're now going through with a, a number of rules, simple rules. Um, for example, I'm also trying to ration the news I take on board. Yeah. You know, um, whatever the line was, man cannot take too much, uh, cope with too much reality. You know, you've got to limit the amount of stuff from out there you take on board. So I'm trying to have a burst of news at lunchtime and a burst of news in the evening, but that's it. That's very sensible, very sensible indeed. I'm trying to ration the amount of food and drink I'm consuming. But I'm also uh, thinking back to a meeting I had a few years ago with a remarkable man called Professor Anthony Clare. Now, do you remember him? Does that name ring a bell? I do, yes, yes, very much so. He was quite famous because he had a radio show called In the Psychiatrist's Chair. And I went to visit him in uh, Dublin. He was the head of the largest psychiatric hospital in Dublin, St. Patrick's. And I went to see him and we talked about happiness. And I learned quite a lot from him. And one of the things I did learn, he, he gave me what amounted to the secrets of happiness. There were seven of them in all. But the first is the one that I want to mention immediately. And that was, he said, that to be happy, you need to be a leaf on a tree. And what did that mean, a leaf on a tree? Well, it's nothing to do with tree hugging. You'll be relieved to know. It's this. <laughs> Although I do, I, I do like that analogy. I am very keen on trees, whether to hug them or not. So what did he mean by that? What he meant by that is simply this. All of us uh, are unique. You're unique. I'm unique. Everybody in the world, all our students, all the members of the Chester University family are, we're all unique individuals. Uh, and every leaf on every tree in the world is unique. No two leaves are exactly alike. And a leaf that's off a tree, that's come off a tree, it floats about a bit in the air, and that freedom is quite exciting. But quite quickly, it floats to the ground and it dies. Professor Clare was telling me that we need to be leaves on a tree attached to an organism that is larger than yourself and still growing. And that's exactly what a university is. 
I'm a leaf on the tree of the University of Chester. So are you. So are all our students, our graduates, the staff, the alumni. We are all leaves on this tree. But it becomes more difficult to be a leaf on a tree when you can't actually be by the tree. And so one of the purposes, I think, of this podcast idea of yours is to remind us that we need to be leaves on this tree. Do you like that? I like that a lot. Um, I, I think I would even extend it further that the university sector across, you know, across the whole of the UK is working so hard to try and complete this academic year in, in good form um, and to actually step up and help society. You mentioned service right at the beginning, and I know that uh, universities are conducting vital research, particularly into coronavirus at the moment. They're also sharing resources. So, for example, our campus at Riverside is going to be used as a a community health hub for retraining people who are coming back and also for our nurses in the third year to just finalise their education so they're ready for frontline work. So universities are doing all sorts of interesting things to support the community that they're in and also the, the UK at large. So they're hugely valuable. And I think maybe we've got a a forest rather than just one single tree. What are you doing with the students at the moment? Have some of them gone home? Are some of them still on campus? What's happened? I mean, how many students are there in all now? The, the vast majority have gone home. Um, so, yes, there's about uh, 20,000 students all in, although only about 15,000 sort of regularly on campus. So the vast majority are home. International students who can't get home are still on campus, both here in Chester and Warrington. We've got some students for whom this is home for the duration of their studies, and they're still with us. So we we do have support staff here who are still working to uh, ensure that if they are self-isolating, for example, that they can still get food. But it's a very much smaller community than we regularly have. Mm. Well, this leads me to the second of Professor Clare's Secrets of Happiness. And it was this, break the mirror. Now, can you guess what that means? <laughs> Don't be egocentric or something along those lines, or narcissistic, maybe? Right. Because, um, exactly. Break the mirror. Normally, people think, oh, break the mirror, seven years, bad luck. Well, in this instance, apparently, you get seven years longer life because happy people, as a rule, um, will live seven to ten years longer than unhappy people. Being happy, obviously, I'm not talking about ecstasy, I'm talking about that sense of well-being, that sense of being at ease with the world. That's what I mean by happiness. And break the mirror. What's that got to do with it? How does that give you seven years longer life? Well, what it really means, and this is difficult right now, is to not be self-regarding. You're right. Not be narcissistic, looking in the mirror all the time. We've turned our lives into one major selfie now. But what Professor Clare was saying, if you actually think about yourself all the time, it will get you down. Uh, He reminded me that uh, the great uh, Carl Jung, one of the founders of analytical psychology, had done uh, research on his patients, the unhappy ones and the happy ones. And he found that the happiest of his patients had been people who were always outward looking, who were interested in the world around them, in science, in nature, in art, in other people, who were looking upwards and outwards not inwards and downwards. As 
professor Claire said to me, you know, Charles, it's fortunate that I'm paid as a psychiatrist because people come in here, they sit down, and of course they've got problems, and it's my job to listen to them, and I do. But sometimes, he said, I'm glad I am paid because I couldn't do it otherwise because the more you talk about yourself, the more you drive people away, which is interesting. Uh, talk about them, and they come towards you. Talk about yourself, you drive them away. Well, at the moment, that really is challenging because inevitably we are all thinking about ourselves. Not all of us. You saw, didn't you, how was it something that they asked for a quarter of a million volunteers? Mm, and they got half a million and yeah. now they want 750,000, they'll get them. It's, it's amazing. So a lot of people are clearly are not thinking about themselves, but it is particularly challenging. I mean, that, that's breaking the mirror is the, the one of the secrets that most young people find the most difficult. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The one that people of my generation find the most difficult is the third secret, and that is to embrace change. Don't resist change. Mm. Now, I don't like change. I, I've got to the age, I mean, change, I don't really like the 21st century. Uh, I'd rather be in the 1890s. Uh, <laughs> that, that's, my, <laughs> that's my golden age. Is it? Uh, 1890s. I'm, I'm less keen on that in terms of women's rights, but yes, I, I get some of right. that. The hygiene and all sorts <laughs> of reasons. But, um, but I, I, I'm with you in, in many ways. And of course, uh, you are correct. Change is good for us. We've got to embrace change. Uh, you know, people say don't rock the boat, but in fact, a little gentle rocking does you good. We're all confronted by change at the moment. So those of us who are finding it really challenging, and a lot of people will be, um, we've got to embrace the changes. We've got to try to think less about ourselves. That is difficult because we're all worried. We've got to embrace the changes that are all around us. We've got to stay in touch with our community. And I'll just give you one secret, and then you can share your secrets of happiness with me. And the fourth most important one was to cultivate a passion. Have something in your life outside of yourself, outside of your work, really, that sustains you, that you that that keeps you happy. Uh, it could be anything. It could it could be well, it could be anything. It could be a hobby, be playing the violin. It could be my my passion. I think is words and language. What what is your passion? I think my passion is definitely plants and the environment. Uh, so I'm an environmentalist. But you see, I've been really lucky because I'm, I've been able to combine the, that passion with work. That's one of the privileges of a university existence. So my two huge interests are the environment and education. And I have been able to sort of parallel those through my career. Um, sometimes one took the lead, sometimes uh, another, depending whether I was doing more management or more my subject area. So I think people have got to look for something they can be enthusiastic about over a long period, but still be open to new ideas and new hobbies. You're spot on there. But the danger of your work life being integral to your passion is that the day comes when you're not necessarily working in a university environment. You can still, in your case, you can still be a scientist. It will go on. But I, I think of um, Margaret Thatcher. When, when I first got into politics, she was the prime minister. Whatever one's politics, nobody can deny that Margaret Thatcher was a remarkable human being. She was our yes. first female prime minister. And her passion in life was entirely politics. And when she ceased to be prime minister, when that passion was taken away from her, she became an unhappy person because she had no resources to fall back on. That was everything for her. Now, think of a person of the same age, same vintage as Mrs. Thatcher, 
the Queen. The Queen, happily, still with us, about to be 94 years of age, as we know, driven by duty, sustained by faith, but she has a passion in her life, her dogs and her horses. If ever you want to see a picture of happiness, look at a photograph taken of the Queen at uh, the races. <laughs> at the races, yeah. Has won the race. That is a picture of happiness. Indeed, as the Duke of Edinburgh, if I may name drop, as the Duke of Edinburgh once said to me, <laughs> it's true. If, she, if it doesn't fart or eat hay, she isn't interested. <laughs> uh, but if it does, she is. So we all need a passion and a passion that can sustain us. So these are, those are my tips. Now, what tips do you have for the? I think they're great. I think one of my tips is actually, which is hard at the moment, but is to sort of relate to people who are different ages than oneself. So I think it's hugely beneficial to me to work with young people, um, particularly the people coming straight into university from college or from school. So that's a, that's a joy every year. They come in with fresh ideas and fresh enthusiasm. That is a privilege. But I'm also uh, very conscious of the older generation and I've always made some effort to actually engage with them. And, and I know more about, for example, I don't know, the Second World War than I probably should do in terms of listening to stories of old. Um, and I think that's quite important to be in a mixed community, to actually make a real effort. And of course, now that's pretty tricky because young people are being told to keep away from older people, just as they might have been useful to actually support them. And older people might not be quite um, as savvy with technology. So I think we've got a little bit of a disconnect and we people talk about the generational gap. And I do hope this doesn't make it any worse and make people sort of hunker down into their own uh, stratum of society. So that, that's one of my worries. But I think on the positive side, I think quite a lot of good might come out of this circumstance. I mean, for the environment, have you seen those um, reports that show how many the air pollutants, the values are going down and the, the amount in the atmosphere reducing? So there's one called nitrous oxide. And I think the emissions have gone down by a quarter because people haven't been moving about. Now, the effect on the environment, they kill thousands of people, in fact, millions across the world every year. So do you think we ever would have said, let's stop moving about for the sake of public health? It's so indirect. This virus is such a direct threat to us. But actually, there was already an enormous threat from these indirect impacts of, of our lifestyle. I am hoping that actually we... we um, get used to this way of being and not always having to be moving about and not always having to use up the world's resources to do what we think we need to do? I am hopeful that when we come through this, people will realise that most of the meetings that they attend turn out not to be necessary. Um, <laughs> I mean this by <laughs> business meetings, faculty meetings. Yes, indeed. Uh, but I'm with you on the environment totally. Um, this morning, though, Curiously, because I live under the flight path to Heathrow in London okay. and the aeroplanes haven't been going. But I'm still waking at six in the morning as if they were. And I was thinking this morning about you mentioned the Second World War and uh, something interesting that Anthony Clare told me about the Second World War, because I'd said to him, oddly enough, my parents often talked about the Second World War, some of the happiest days of their life. And my mother, during the Second World War, she lived in London. Bombs were falling. She was bringing up my older sisters. And yet she talked about it at the happiest time of their life. And my father, during the Second World War, for six years, he was in the army, risking his life on a daily basis as, as a soldier. 
And yet he sometimes talked about it as the happiest days of his life. I said to Dr. Clare, why is that? And he said, oh, that's quite easy to explain. During the Second World War, yes, bombs were falling on your mother, but there was a sense of purpose. There was a sense of unity. There was a sense of shared values. And that makes people very happy indeed. A sense of unity makes people happy. I don't know when this podcast of ours is going to be heard, but it may be heard after Thursday evening when uh, people will be gathering on their balconies and their doorsteps applauding the NHS. It's a, it's a gesture. It's nothing more than a gesture. Mm-hmm. But millions of people will take part. A sense of community makes people happy. And then he said, and your soldiers, your sailors, your airmen who joined the Second World War, yes, they were risking their lives on a daily basis, but also on a daily basis, they were being tested. And all the research shows that being tested, being challenged, is a key element to finding happiness. You very rarely find happy people sitting around not doing very much. An engagement with life, being challenged, being tested, is a key to finding happiness. So in this nightmare, there will be people who actually will find, maybe in retrospect, that rising to the challenge, being tested by all this, actually has brought them a kind of happiness. I I think you're right. It it will certainly give people a a sense of purpose, I think, hence all those volunteers. But I think um, students, you know, not just here, but across the land, really, I think they're getting to grips with working in a completely different way and having to finish off assignments and do things on the computer they'd normally have done maybe in an exam room. But actually, there has been a, a lot of positive feeling about that, you know, not a lot of criticism, but just saying, okay, this is a new circumstance. We recognize how hard tutors are working, uh, we will just get on with it. And I think it will bring out that sort of spirit and perhaps the best in people trying to do something quite different. So earlier, you mentioned something about community and staying in touch. So what sort of um, people have you perhaps kept in touch with maybe in the last week or touch base with who maybe you weren't already in contact with? Have you looked up old school friends or old flames or who? I wouldn't risk an old flame, can I tell you? Oh, you? No. you know my wife. I don't think I'm going to risk an old flame. Uh, well, we've done two things. At, at a family level, we've discovered the app called Zoom that nobody had heard of two weeks ago. Now everybody in the world seems to be using. Pity we didn't have shares in that. Anyway, uh, and through Zoom on Mothering Sunday, we yeah. got together. We have three children. Some people say to me sometimes, why are you still working, Giles? I say to them, I need, I need the money. I've got three children. Over the years, I've discovered money is the one thing keeping me in touch with them. Anyway, um, we have three children and seven grandchildren. And so the four households got together for a Mothering Sunday brunch. We all had the same meal at the same time, and we chatted. And that was fun. So family things are good. And we've had a couple of sort of cocktail gatherings since then on Zoom. But what is interesting is this. People have been getting in touch. And by telephone, I keep saying we don't need a a, a telephone. But people over the age of 80 are still using the old-fashioned telephone. Did you see the photograph of the Queen on the telephone to the Prime Minister using old Bakelite telephone? (laughs) Bless her. I noticed. Probably crystal clear. (laughs) Yes, bless her. The Prime Minister, I noticed, was speaking to the Queen with his hand in his pocket. I didn't approve. I did not approve. But there we are. What can you do? Uh, The younger generation. 
I think he probably has a lot on his mind at the moment, so we might have to forgive him that. Well, I think we've. I think this is a time for kindness and forgiveness and for understanding. Yeah, absolutely. Can I can I also ask you about uh, some of the other people you worked with? Because we, um, you were you told me you were going to do a performance with Judy Dench. You were performing at the theatre. Was that all cancelled? Yes, I. Judy Dench is an actress I've admired oh, all my life. When I was a, a little boy, I used to go to the Old Vic Theatre in London. And in 1960 or 1961, I went to see my first Romeo and Juliet. And the part of Juliet was played by the young Judy Dench. And I went to a school's matinee. People were there with their parents. And funnily enough, Judy Dench's parents were there as well. And I remember the performance vividly because she ran onto the stage, this young girl playing her first Juliet, she ran onto the stage and said to the nurse, the part of the nurse was played by an actress called Peggy Mount. Anyway, she said to the nurse as she came on, where are my mother and my father, nurse? And a voice from the fifth row of the stalls called out, here we are, darling, in row G. I was there <laughs> when it happened. And I <laughs> Julie Dench. And last year, we did a couple of fundraisers, charity shows, to raise money for different theatres. And uh, they went very well, and we get on well. And the producer said, why don't you do this? Let's celebrate. Judy Dench is 85. Let's celebrate her incredible career. And so we put together a show that we were going to do at the Bridge Theatre, a new theatre in London by Tower Bridge. And we would have been doing it this very week and last week and the week before. But of course, it's been postponed. I don't know when we'll be doing it. And then I was going to go on a 32-day tour, traveling all around the country. Nearest to Chester I was coming was Liverpool. So all that's had to be postponed. I'm just thinking about Judy Dench, obviously one of our illustrious honorary uh, degree holders. Um, so we wish her well in uh, in this period. But also the Earl of Chester, who apparently is unwell with uh, with this virus. Yes, the Earl of Chester, also known as the Duke of Cornwall, also known as the Prince of Wales. Yes, Prince Charles uh, has got mild symptoms, uh, reporting mild symptoms, much as the Prime Minister now is reporting to have mild symptoms, and both have been tested and have got the coronavirus, but they seem to be carrying on in their self-isolation. Yeah. Good. Well, we, we wish them well. And uh, we've heard from uh, friends in uh, California, where it's pretty grim, yeah. uh, and also in France, where it's grim, and it has touched, it's touched people's lives. I, I mean, I now know, uh, I know of two people who have died. I know several people who have got symptoms, some of whom have been tested. And I have a, a friend who, um, whose retirement party I went to about six weeks ago, and he and his partner were going to the Far East for the holiday of a lifetime, and off they set. And he is now in the Far East, in hospital, in intensive care, pneumonia and COVID-19. Yeah, he's okay. He's been, he's got to be there. He's been there 10 days, but he's now apparently on the mend. But even so, it's, it's grim. It's much too close for comfort, isn't it, in many, many respects? How are you communicating and who are you communicating with? 
Well, at the moment, I'm still very much focused on communicating uh, across the universities. So we're using various uh, video conferencing to try and keep people together because seeing people is also good. The telephone's great, but actually managing to see different faces on the screen, especially for staff working at home, because what we are concerned about is one could spend hours in front of a screen doing both the paperwork and the video meetings. And it can be still pretty isolating. So we're conscious of trying to support staff well-being with you know fun activities, stuff on our website, trying to get group chats going and book clubs and cafe meetings and that sort of thing. Um, we haven't done cocktails yet. Maybe we'll go to that next, as you suggest. That sounds well, rather a nice thing. Quite a fun idea. It, yeah. And we do it at 8 o'clock at night because all my children have got children themselves. So they wait till yeah. they've got the children in bed. And yeah. then they a pretty huge cocktail. Yeah. Uh, because I don't drink alcohol, mine is a mocktail. But a they mocktail feel cocktail, yeah. It's a, a license to unwind at the end of the mm. day, which I, which I do think we need. Um, I think that's very nice. Uh, one of the things that uh, I don't know, we don't know how long this will last. And I had um, a, a sister who was a very active member of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, a great believer in it. And she was a member for 30 or more years. It first saved her life. And then later it made her life. Um, it was a community that she was uh, very much part of. And of course, one of the, the rules of members of AA is to live one day at a time, because we don't know how long this is going to get last. People like me, of my generation, have been advised to self-isolate for 12 weeks. That's three months. That's quite a long time. One of the things that I'm thinking about is wanting to feel that we've come away from this experience with something new, something amazing that we've never done before it, it could be anything it could be oh I've, I've i've had the complete works of dickens on my shelves all my life but i've never read dombey and son yeah. um, you know I, I, i've read some of jane austen but not all of it oh i used to play the piano can i learn again is there an online course it doesn't matter really what it is it could be let's build the eiffel tower out of matches let's learn norwegian let's describe let's define Let's discover what binary means. I still don't know. But let's do something. So yeah. I'm going, what, what are you going? I mean, you've just got to make this thing work. But is there something that you hope to come out of this thinking, well, it was an extraordinary year, a difficult year. We survived and I came out with it, out of it with something. Yes, I'm thinking of learning a language. So my younger son is very keen to uh, improve his French um, and I quite like to dust mine off and, and have a go. So uh, we might well use uh, video technology to uh, jointly learn French, which would be quite fun. And as you say, there are also plenty of good books to read. So perhaps I will catch up with some of those, maybe get some gardening done. So there, yeah. there's plenty to do. I'm really into poetry in a big way. I, I started this project last year called Poetry Together, and it's, essentially a scheme where we get young people and very old people together to recite poems. And it's worked incredibly well. We've been doing it initially with school children, school kids, primary school kids, secondary school kids. And we've got them together and got them to learn a poem by heart. And then they have uh, got in touch with their local old people's home, a local care home, and invited the old people in the old care home to learn the same poem. And they learn the poems separately. And then uh, how we worked it last year was around National Poetry Day on the first 
the 1st of October. It's going to be the same date this year. And hopefully by then, normal life may have resumed. We can do it again. And the, the old people and the young people get together and they have tea and cake and they perform their poem. And it's been a fascinating thing to watch. We, we, we did a, uh, we tried it out. We did a kind of pilot at the Chelsea Pensioners Hospital in London. You know where all those old soldiers live. Yes. In they have men and they have women. And, but it's mostly old, old gentlemen in their 80s and 90s. One, I think, is over 100. Anyway, we had this event. And at this event, uh, a tea party, uh, they got together, the old people and the young people. And they, they began by these primary school children marching into the room alongside these old soldiers. And they dressed, the old soldiers dressed the children in those scarlet uniforms that the Chelsea pensioners wear. And they all marched into the room together going, we're changing guard at Buckingham Palace. Christopher Robin went down with Alice. And it was very touching. And then one of the old soldiers, a man in his 90s, stepped forward. And with an 18-year-old young man who was about to go to university in his last year at school, they stepped forward and together, side by side, they recited a First World War poem by Siegfried Sassoon. It was immensely moving. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. And it was interesting to me later, over the tea and the cake, I found this 90-year-old and this 18-year-old sitting side by side and talking about the reality of war. And it made me realize that through poetry, you can actually discover things, of course. I mean, poetry is amazing. I mean, uh, you know, what, what is poetry? It's, it's expressing thought, emotion. You can do all sorts of things. But also, it's a trigger for people getting to know one another. Uh, and I think it's marvelous. Carol Ann Duffy, a poet I really admire, she said, you can find poetry in your everyday life, your memory, in what people say on the bus, in the news, or just what's in your heart. And so at the moment, while we are uh, doing social distancing, while we are unexpectedly isolated, I find opening a book of poems is interesting. And I'm, I find poems are friends. And what I call poetry, you know, uh, uh, poetry is much broader than many. People think of poetry, they think, oh, it's going to be Keats, it's going to be Wordsworth, it's going to be a sonnet by Shakespeare, it's going to be Siegfried Sassoon. Yeah, it can be all of those things, but it can also be rap. It can also be, there are insta-poets. I mean, there's, you, you will have know, you will have heard of Rupi Kaur, I think was born 1992, so is she a millennial? I don't know. Anyway, she's an Indian-born Canadian poet. Her first collection of Insta poems, they sold more than three million copies around the world. Spent a whole year on the New York Times bestseller list. She wrote that wonderful single-line poem. Loneliness is a sign you're in desperate need of yourself. Love it. I, I, I love, I, I've, I've done a kind of A to Z. I did a book of poetry. I've done a kind of A to Z of, of great poets from W.H. Auden. You remember that wonderful poem that became popular because it was in the film uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral uh, through to Benjamin Zephaniah. So useful when you're doing an A to Z that there's Benjamin Zephaniah there. But I love one of his. It's called Who's Who. I used to think nurses were women. I used to think police were men. I used to think poets were boring until I became one of them. You can do anything with poetry. I regard poems as some of my best friends. And during this 
rather challenging time for all of us. I'm encouraging everyone I know just to dip into poetry. They may never have done it before. Uh, just, and you don't need to understand a poem. People think, oh, I've got to understand every line. No, you can just let it wash over you. Poems can be good friends. So, Giles, if we want um, people to be able to find you online to hear more from you, um, it's your blog and your website and your Instagram and Twitter. That's it. It's a limited range, but we can't all do everything all the time. Um, so, I, and I, oh, on Twitter, I'm doing something quite amusing. Somebody said to me, desperate times, Giles, call for desperate measures. Bring out those jumpers. So I've gone to the basement and I've discovered, I used to wear novelty knitwear yeah. in the 1970s and 1980s, and I've still got, it turns out, hundreds of jumpers in the basement. So I've, I've fought my way through the mothballs and I've found these old jumpers and I'm wearing a different jumper every day. And so every day on Twitter, I'm putting a poem, usually one that lasts 20 seconds. So you can wash your hands with my poem and you can startle your eyes with my jumper. So what I'm saying to people who are part of our community, the University of Chester community, why don't you find a poem, a short poem, a poem that you like? It can be a piece of rap. It can be an Insta poem. It can be a classical poem by one of the greats of yesteryear. It can be something popular by John Betjeman or Hilaire Belloc, anything you like. And just on your iPhone, record yourself reading or saying this poem and share it. Share it with the community. It's one way we could be in touch with one another. Send a poem. That's a great idea, Giles. I absolutely love that. So I'm doing that on Twitter, which is at GilesB1, G-A-Y-L-E-S-B-1, uh, on Twitter. And I'm also on Instagram, uh, at Giles Brandreth. Now, if we want to keep in touch with the University of Chester, what do we do? I've got an Instagram account and the university has lots of those. So that's that's where we put our pictures. Also, we're pretty active on Twitter um, and we, you can see what we're up to. We're putting out, starting to put out stuff about staff who are supporting, you know, the coronavirus endeavour. So, yes, we are we are trying to really keep the community together by sharing all sorts of both serious and silly stuff you know, that normally would uh, would occur in a university during the course of, of this week. So we were supposed to be doing our High Sheriff Awards for, for Chester and Cheshire. They, they were supposed to be um, tonight. And so it's very disappointing we're not doing those. So on, we're going to try and put out some communications that feels like we're celebrating in a virtual sense. But thinking about your role, it is quite, it's a ceremonial and it's wonderful having you at the graduations. So we've got to think of a way that perhaps we could have a little bit of ceremony with your good self as well at some point because Ooh. we can't have you here in person. Well, I, I've got my University of Chester uh, rowing club blazer. I oh. don't have the ceremonial robes, but I have got the right colours and I've got my University of Chester tie so I can dress up and we'll do a ceremony. Yes. Uh, we can do a virtual handshake. Excellent. Well, that, I think that's a that's great that's idea because the laser is rather alarmingly stripy, for, I remember. So yes. uh, that would be quite fun. And we can do a namatse. Yes. That's, we can do that. So you let me know what we should be doing and I will be there doing it. 
Okay. That's fantastic. Well, Giles, thank you ever so much for your support for not just this university, but as I say, universities across the country who are working hard to uh, try and stay one step ahead of this uh, this scenario. It's a, there's no better community, frankly, than a university community, because basically we're as well as colleagues, we're we're friends, uh, and that's good. And what I love about our university is. In the, in the best sense, I think the faculty, the teachers, the professors, the academics, all the staff are friends with one another and friends with the student community. So my message to everybody is try every day to get a little dose of laughter. Go on to YouTube and find something you think is funny and let yourself laugh at it. And then don't forget that everybody is there to be a friend to you and get in touch. Get in touch with whoever it may be at the university. Get in touch with your nan, your parents, somebody you haven't been in touch with for years. Just keep in touch and let's all be friends. Thank you, Giles. That's absolutely terrific. I think we've captured an awful lot there. Thank you very much. Well done, us. Universal is a podcast from the University of Chester, hosted by me, Professor Eunice Simmons. I look forward to bringing you the second episode soon. Particular thanks this week to our communications and AV teams. Remote production support came from Mark Sargason. Our editor is Ewan Morgan. And our music is by Last Mode.